Welcome to Arrested DevOps, episode 39, Eating Sushi with Andrew Clay Schaefer. I'm your co-host, Matt Stratton, at Matt Stratton on Twitter. And I'm your co-host, Bridget Crumhout, at Bridget Crumhout on Twitter. Arrested DevOps is brought to you by 10th Magnitude, a cloud services company that figures if you're listening to this podcast, you must be pretty cool. You can find out about joining their cloud services team at arresteddevops.com slash 10th Magnitude. This episode is also sponsored by PagerDuty. PagerDuty eliminates the noise, chaos, and manual processes across the entire incident lifecycle to decrease resolution time. PagerDuty is trusted by companies like Etsy, Nike, and GitHub. To sign up for your free 14-day trial, visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash PagerDuty. So today we're uh, recording and broadcasting live from DevOps Days Minneapolis 2015 and with a live studio audience, a slash heckling squad. Speak, give us some, some applause, audience, so they know you're... <laughs> Yay! Up Recorded in front of a live studio audience. I know. And, um, and our special guest today is today's closing keynote speaker, Andrew Clay Schaefer. And I'm really excited to have him on the podcast. I think the main reason we're able to have him on the podcast is because we cornered him since he's actually at this conference. Because it's, it's difficult to track him down. I told you I could do it uh, <laughs> over the... Well, we wanted to make sure he was legit. You know, we're like, we've been doing this podcast for a while. We're like, I guess you've been saying enough smart stuff. We can bring you on our okay. show. Trust, well, trust but verify. <laughs> I wasn't even trusting that the airlines were going to get him here. Yesterday when I saw where, that where, there was... Where were flights shut down from? The, Everywhere. Sorry. Really? United had like a global or like a nationwide ground. Yeah, United for, stopped all their flights. Hmm. And I was like, oh, he forwarded me his itinerary. He's on Delta. Maybe they everything need will some be DevOps, fine. Man. <laughs> there was an automation problem with United yesterday, and they, they grounded all their flights. There, there actually really was. Uh, or a lack, of, <laughs> a lack of automation. So I want to start with a little pet peeve I have. The, the quirky way that I process the world. I have a pet peeve against the numbers on podcasts. Why, why do you need an episode oh, number okay. on a podcast? That's a, this is a really... A zero value. Okay. So this is a thing, actually. Sort by date. Done. I will. Uh, I will tell you. Free why. yourself from numerical oppression. So this is a really. This is a really good thing. And there's actually an entire episode of a podcast called The Audacity of Podcast, which is a podcast about podcasting that's awesome about whether or not you should use episode numbers or not. And we're not going to go into it by grand detail. But part of the reason why we do episode numbers is at a certain point is we. It's it's a it, it makes life easier for me as a podcaster to be able to quickly reference an episode. So eating sushi, the one where they ate sushi. Well, no, but things like I can say, hey, go listen to arrestedevops.com/slash/thirty-two. You can still have indexes. I just yeah. okay. It is, but I agree is. with you. The problem what what ends up happening, and some of it's very self-serving because then it can make you feel awesome. Like I know how awesome we felt when we're like, hey, we hit episode ten, and then. You know, and eventually you hit episode 100. And, and it's not just podcasts. It, yeah. It's like UFC 175. You're like, really? We have our first heckler from the audience. And since that was actually hilarious, I'm just going to walk over here and let John Willis actually repeat that. Please re recreate the moment, John. Yeah, no, I said at first it is about your ego of like, we got the 30, we got the 40. And then when you slow down for like three years in a row, then you got depressed about it. Like we got to, this is episode 37. You know? <laughs> I, I will say, though, it's, it's a thing that I've had. There's, there's several identity crisis or crisis of confidence I have with the show. And one is around episode numbers. But then I, I have this thing where I'm like, 
but it would kind of be weird to stop having them because we had them, but maybe we'll treat, break. Treat episodes like pets, not cattle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is apparently what we're doing. We, we do have some favorites, and I think this is probably going to be one of them because, come on. So, first of all, I have to apologize for the title. I had the I had a full intention of trying to order False some, advertising. Sushi, well, some sushi from uh, well, Bite Squad, but... I did not actually get around to ordering any sushi. So well, unless uh, Joe to. wants to order us some sushi from Bite Squad, I don't care what. Something with salmon or tuna. What's good? Well, I in fish. the interest of avoiding hipster <laughs> devopsism, I do think that while the title itself is Total Inside Baseball, I think we should explain for our audience, both live and on the internet, why we called this. I mean, what's the what's the 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 uh, the backstory to the title "Eating Sushi with Andrew Clay Schaefer"? Okay, I made that as a uh, DevOps Against Humanity card because, um, which is a Cards Against Humanity variant that I put on GitHub because I like that concept. I just don't like any of the cards. So um, I made one that I actually thought was funny. And Twitter people actually populated most of the content. But I wrote that one because um, it seems like every conference I go to that Andrew's at, we end up eating sushi, which is actually hilarious because I like eat some edamame, edamame and then I eat an energy bar later because I don't actually eat fish. But I always go to eat sushi with Andrew Clay Schaefer because that's where you get really interesting conversations. Yeah. Uh, at Agile last year, I was not privileged enough because we had also like met probably for the first time like about 10 minutes before. I did not get to go to have sushi with Andrew. And then at Interop this year, after we, Andrew and I sat on a panel together, we're like, oh, after this happy hour, let's go get dinner. And then I promptly went back to my room and passed out and woke up the next morning to many at messages and DMs from Andrew being like, yo, where are you at? Let's go get some sushi. And I was like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, here was my... So you, you missed know, out on your I missed it, so I, I saw it, it wasn't just me, but the, all the DevOps Day Silicon Valley, we ended up going to sushi afterwards. Uh, Chris uh, from Belgium, those guys. And then for a while, I, I do have an affinity for... Uh, Sushi, and I was posting lots of uh, Vine videos of <laughs> meals uh, with many people, um, most of which were are still part of the DevOps community. So there's been there has been some sushi consumed as part of the this DevOps story. I, I do want. I also want to take one one step back again. This is like the total most YOLO'd episode we've done, because again we're sitting here, Bridget and I were sitting here. We know who Andrew is. Probably a lot of the people here as well. Most of the people. You know, at the event, if for no other reason than you just gave a talk, and I presume you introduced yourself. But for our podcast listeners, maybe Danny can you give us a, a little introduction, a little background as to you know who is who is the, who is the man, the myth, the mystery? Kate. Yeah, why the hell are you on our show? Google me. <laughs> All right, done. No, okay. <laughs> I I did some things with uh, DevOps related themes. I've been involved in software development or technology stuff or almost 20 years on some level and then now I'm just trying to learn more about the systems that we all participate in and grow I mean my main motive the reason that I ever got into computer stuff was just uh, you know I graduated from a master's program my first baby was born and my wife started medical school in about two months and then that was sort of the end of the rock and roll lifestyle and my wife decided I should probably get a job and it's like, what will people pay me to do? And then it's like, well, you can make computers do stuff, and we'll pay you to do that. And I was like, done. And then <laughs> now that just evolved. Um, you know, the first the first thing I ever worked out for, and this is just by chance, was a venture funded startup. Uh, they'd raised a bunch of money to do something crazy that was, you know, literally a, a solution in search of a problem. 
And so I watched a bunch of people do these things, and there was all this dysfunction where the CEO was hiring his family members to do, you know, critical things and, you know, whatever. And then that got over, and I went across town where a bunch of other people had uh, another startup they had just raised, their, their A round, and I watched them burn through another good $25 uh, million. And then I was thinking, hey, I can make bad decisions as well as these guys can, <laughs> so maybe I should learn how to how to do that. And then I got you know really interested in the dynamics of venture funding and how how to build organizations and how to do that sort of stuff. And that led into uh, so Luke Kniss, uh, who's the CEO of Puppet Labs, was my roommate in, in college back in the day, and we started working on trying to make Puppet into a thing. And then that got me interested in this domain around operations because before that I was I mean, I'd done some system administrative tasks, but I was more of a pure developer, kind of from a mindset and, and a you know, job description. And like now you learn all this stuff about the domain you're programming in. No matter what you're programming, the more you understand the domain, the better your, your outcomes are going to be. So I started learning all this stuff and then got involved with the Velocity. I, I really feel like Velocity, even though DevOps wasn't a word yet, Velocity Conference was, was clearly uh, explaining DevOps themes before that was a word. You know, the very first DevOps, or the very first Velocity had, had lots of uh, content that was about developers and operations. And this was sort of before O'Reilly started um, taping all the things, so some of that stuff's lost. I had a, an excellent presentation at Velocity 2009 on agile infrastructure that never got recorded, which is uh, well, maybe like a tragedy. Could, maybe, maybe in 2019, so the 10 year anniversary, you can try to reconstruct it from memory. I mean, the deck's on SlideShare. At that that conference, and you know, in, and I'd forgotten about Andrew's presentation, even though I knew him. But and we always hear John Ospar's seminal thing. Actually, Andrew's was basically the same day, and in Andrew's presentation, you can find it. He has the um, the classic uh, wall of confusion that almost everybody has used in a slide deck, and that was the same. And nothing. I love John Ospar. We all do. He's awesome, and that was a seminal event. But his presentation was pretty seminal too, because he actually started describing stuff that is used just about everywhere on the internet about DevOps in that presentation. And I definitely recommend going and finding it. So, so what, so, so Andrew, what actually, would you actually about that presentation before we before we move away from that? I wanted to say that. Um, I, after going to ChefConf, my coworker Pete Shannon decided to write a post about what he had figured out for himself about the history of DevOps. He dug up that presentation. You have the slides somewhere, but he couldn't find video of it. Slideshow. There's no, it was never recorded. Yeah, so that's why he couldn't find video. But he did dig up the slides for that, and he was like, "Check this out." And I was like, "I know that guy." <laughs> so it's interesting. So you know, John, when you, you mentioned, you know, again, kind of the, you know, genesis of of talking about the wall of confusion and things like that, and so. Long-time listeners of the show, as long-time of a listener as you can be, that we've been doing this for a year and a half, know that actually part of the reason, or actually the main reason that this show exists was because I started listening to John and Damon on DevOps Cafe and understood about 5% of what they ever were talking about. And I was, and be, by sheer force. And you're force, like, I can make bad decisions as well as those well, guys. Well, right. Well, it was through sheer force of will of basically, I'm listening, especially John, like, you know, kind of going and like talking about Deming and talking about Alspa. And like, I didn't even know Alspa's first name, you know, and all these things and, and stuff. And so these references are made. So there's these things that are kind of part of what we know being part of the community. And what we try to do with this show is be able, for the people that don't have the tenacity or stubbornness that, like I did, to just say, I'm just going to keep listening to this, and eventually through osmosis and context, I'll get it. That being said, 
can I, I two kind of a twofold question? One is maybe just a little bit of a shorter one, which is kind of elaborate a little bit on this idea of wall of confusion, which we take as just table stakes of a thing. And then the second part of the question is, if you were to think back to that talk you gave now six years ago, what do you think is still true? Or what do you think are things that you're saying now with what you know and where things have changed? You know, if you went back to past Andrew, that you'd say like, oh, you know what, that was kind of an idea, but maybe it hasn't proven out. Or it has. So what are the questions again? The first one is, can you just explain the wall of confusion the wall, oh, quickly the wall of confusion. For, for our so context? Just, this is a semantic, uh, you know, jargony way to talk about the, the different incentives that exist between developers and operations and the, the world that developed in, you know, some of the traditional ways that people did operations before it was really a... There's this transition that happened as software became service-oriented versus shipped on CDs, where the, the servers now become this critical part of the value chain. And if you've de-emphasized the, the system administration and the operation of those servers, then you don't actually have software. And in the middle between this world where system administrators were for keeping the printers and the, and the mail server up to where they're a critical part of the value chain, there's a bunch of uh, broken uh, IT practices that probably made sense in that world that don't make sense when you're trying to manage a service. And so recognizing that the best way to, to optimize the system is not to just throw random stuff onto production servers and then make it ops problem, but to realize that the the Infrastructure itself, and because there's all these other things that are happening, like infrastructure is code. To me, like there's this idea that it represent you can represent infrastructure with code, but it also means that the infrastructure has become an application, and that you can manage these things uh, as an application, right? And so that'll dovetail into the answering the second question. And I, I don't think there's anything that didn't really prove out. If you go back to that thing, I think it's just uh, evolved and clarified itself. And a lot of things that that I said that we should be doing, like now people do as the, the baseline. And what, what I think was, I, what I, you know, people give me credit for things, and it's not that, you know, I, I don't, I like attention, don't get me wrong, but it was more about just being in the right place to articulate things than, than it's like a, a creative thing. Like I did not create DevOps, I did not create these ideas, I just happened to be in a place where these things that were so obvious to me, I just said them out loud and they're like, Wow, you know, so and people happen to be listening. Yeah, and people have. Yeah, I happen to be in a, in a privileged position uh, to have a microphone, and then people listen. So you look at what I saw as this transition coming onto the project, um, and seeing what was happening with the the public community, and having gone through. You know, I left out a little bit of my background, but I used to go to this agile uh, roundtable in Salt Lake City, which is led by this guy, who who now who no longer lives in Salt Lake, but uh, his name's Alistair Coburn. And he calls himself a witch doctor, basically. He's kind of a, an eclectic personality, iconoclastic personality. And you can't help but be uh, influenced by kind of his enthusiasm and, and some of these ideas. And, and he has, in his kind of agile conception, he, he's sort of undervalued, I think, in the, in the conversation around agile mostly because marketing wins and Scrum is easy. And so then there's lots of people who, when you say Agile, what they really hear you say is like the most tepid version of Scrum possible. But there's this much richer, uh, richer body of, of knowledge and practice that people can draw on. So having that as a background and then seeing what was happening with the, the public community and the tools there, I just connected dots to take advantage of 
tools and practices that were already used to manage software process and, and bring that into the, the infrastructure and the operations work. And uh, I think the, the whole community is better for it. So I'm glad that you started and continued it, some of those it's conversations. Us. It's, it's us. It's not, it's not me. It's about it's a, all of us are doing it. Absolutely. Right? It's a, it's a conversation that we're all continuing together today as of this moment. You mentioned Agile and you mentioned Scrum. And I've, I've heard you say that uh, Scrum is a disease. So can you give us a little bit of your thoughts of what direction that sort of stuff is going? My, my personal opinion is Scrum's impact on software development is net negative. Uh, I think it's particularly uh, bad when people try to adopt it in uh, operations. Uh, it's really susceptible to problems when you have any interrupt-driven works whatsoever. And if you don't recognize the flow of work against... There, there's so many things, even in the language, that just drive me insane, right? A scrum master. Really? <laughs> really? Two days? You, you sat in a room for two days, and now you're a master? Really? You know? And, and so there's, there's this kind of anti-pattern where people get some certification. So I think that there's a, there's a psychological thing where people prefer certifications to actually learning. Well, and, and didn't something happen, and, and correct me if I'm I've already learned my lesson at, Inter at uh, Interop to like say something definitive about Agile, and you then correct me and tell me I'm wrong, and you turn out to be right, so I'm smart now. So I'm asking it as a question instead of a statement. But this is what I observed. So my understanding when I was going through organizations that were making Agile transformation is that maybe by intent, or maybe it was just my desire that it should be this way, that Scrum Master is like Build Master. It's a hat. It's a role. It's something that someone does, but it's become someone's job, right? It's basically the new name of a project manager. And then you become certified and you do all these things. And I think that is part of it. Like you said, people inherently want certification. Well, the, I think people also inherently want it to be like this role, like a hat you wear that maybe sometimes you take off and I give it to John or I give it to Andrew or I give it to Bridget. But we want to make them be like, that's my job and my job description. I don't know. Let's finish the thread on language because there's other language there that I, okay. I find abhorrent. A, a sprint. Really? You're going to sprint forever? Like, <laughs> that's your plan? That's your strategy? Sprint after sprint after sprint after sprint? Do you, do you know anything about physiology? Really? Like, that, doesn't, but, that doesn't necessarily so, scale. But, is it, is it, but as, a, as a transitional thing... To make things, I mean, I, I guess I could see it like was a way to be disruptive in the language, There's but it's so not, many more it doesn't scale, here. right? Commitment. This is, the, this is the worst one for me where people are like, oh, you didn't make your commitment. Well, I was up till four in the morning keeping the servers from melting down. Sorry. Mm. Like, that's just bad for morale to, to like mm -hmm. frame things in this way where you don't recognize the, the cues, especially where you have hidden cues of work, interrupt driven cues of work. It's a nightmare. So what's it's, a, it's basically what Scrum represents to me is taking the Gantt chart-driven project planning and saying, okay, Gantt charts are terrible. Let's make them smaller. <laughs> and, then like, and then just going with it. So what do you see as a better way to, to have workflow? I, I really like the, the stuff that's emerged from the, the Kanban community. I really think that the, you know, making, making work explicit, making the process explicit, and it's not that you can't do... You know, all these things are our evolution, right? I really like the, the way that chat ops is changing the dynamics where not only is the work visible, but it's actually facilitated in a way that's, that's auditable and, and shared, right? So even, so in, the, in a task-oriented uh, 
flow system where you're marking tokens as they go across, that's cool, but then you don't actually know what happened. You, you know that it got through some, tr some phases and transitions. Any, anything that creates uh, ambient information, information radiators that helps people understand this larger, because I, I talked in my talk about uh, local rationality and being able to make better decisions as you have more information. If people have the context in their company about how they add value to this global thing, then I think they make better decisions. And so th anything that helps you do that, and, and also I think that there's, um, when, you, when you don't make work explicit and there's a lot of hidden work and a lot of unaccounted for hidden cues of work, then, then the management tends to like really question, like are, you guys, are the developers all lazy? <laughs> like I mean, like what didn't, why didn't we get this thing? I mean we set this date six months ago to deliver on this date. And there's no, there's no real context for why that date made any sense and you didn't really have information about how much work it was or if the team was even capable of doing that stuff. But you kind of made these decisions and then the, the thing didn't line up at the end and, and everyone's like, well, we missed our date and we're over budget. It's like, well, your date was bad because you didn't make good decisions from the beginning. And then you just compounded that by you know, creating this pressure cooker and trying to get your people to do things with, that, that weren't actually possible. Yeah, and I think when you when you hide that stuff, when you hide that debt, I think about um, examples, and this was even pre-agile in the particular organization I was in, where we had a very antiquated, it was basically probably one of the most important systems in our organization. It was fundamentally our CRM. It was the way that we managed our customers. And it was an ancient Visual Basic 6 app that barely anybody even knew how to code the thing, but everything had to talk to it. And it really needed, it was massive, massive debt that we carried around, you know, this giant anchor. But the problem was, from the GM's perspective, you know, from senior management's perspective, it was, well, what about the, fe again, feature, feature, feature. And the problem was, and any time if you would go to, you know, kind of, it, it would be discussed and brought up, they'd say, well, but it seems to be working, right? We don't have outages on it. We're like, well, we don't have outages because of heroic measures. And there would be times I actually told, and I don't necessarily say this is how you should work, but I was running the infrastructure team, and I would say, you guys have to stop being so good at, fixing this app because you hate it and let it break maybe and then maybe we'll see some pain and maybe it will become important and I don't think that's a very healthy way to deal with it but <laughs> see this is the I mean I think it goes back to a bunch of themes uh, throughout this DevOps narrative but when you have pain as an abstract concept that you don't feel then you don't change your behavior so it's one thing for, for managers to hear, oh, you know, it's hard for our sysadmins. And they're like, I don't care, right? You, if, you, if you make them wake up. So he, here's a little, uh, this is an anecdote from Andrew's career. So <laughs> at one point I was at this startup and I was a developer and I I'd, I'd kind of won a bunch of social capital like uh, rescuing some projects with heroics, right? And then there was this, there was two things going on. So I had a, a, a really close friend who had gotten hired to do QA and he was kind of coming up and the way that we work in this industry, we have the, these, this basically a caste system where it's like the QA people, they're not, they're not like us, right? They're, not, they're untouchable or whatever. And then uh, he was being managed by someone who was basically like treating him that way and he was projecting to the managers or the executives uh, this project that was sort of like the whole bet of the company to, de to de deliver this project uh, to a certain client, it was, you know, multiple, uh, lots of zeros for this contract. And 
I knew that it was a disaster, right? Like, because I, I could see the code. I'm looking at the commits, and there's a bunch of stuff going on. And I'm just like, there is no way that this gets delivered in, in a way that this customer is not going to just, like, you know, throw it back in our face. So I went to the CEO one day, and I was like, hey, I didn't, I didn't really focus on the, what I thought was abusive behavior, but I was, I was saying, hey, I think that this thing that we're you know, having company meetings about the future of our company and big bets of the company is probably not on track. And the thin veneer of spreadsheets that you get on a weekly basis <laughs> are not a great representation of the ground truth of this project. And I came back to work the next day, and the CEO and the CTO called me in to their office, at the CEO's office, and they said, Andrew, we think you're right. Now it's your problem. <laughs> and, and, and so then I went from being uh, one of the developers on the, on the team that had you know, won some social capital through Heroics to managing all of uh, customer support and QA for this, for this project. That you already knew was not going to succeed. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, part of it was it was actually problematic because you had this pool. They they structured things, and and this is where this is the thing I want people to take away from my talk, if they can, is that if you believe Conway's law is true, which I do, that your your org structures, and this is not just for software, but everything through your org structure and who communicates with who and who reports to who basically determine the outcome. That's the system that you're building. And they had uh, interrupt-driven work that was the support tickets and QA, and it was the same pool of people who were supposed to do both. And so they had no way to actually do QA in a meaningful fashion because they had no shortage of interrupts, right? So if you just go to the, in the queue of interrupts, you're never going to get to this other work. So the first thing I did was uh, change the structure so people had like dedicated QA time, and then other people are going to be uh, doing support. That's to set up to the, to the climax here. So the, the way that I, I fixed a bunch of things in the, in the, in the company, and really, like, it, it ended up not being a, a great thing, and then the next thing I went to was Puppet, but the, this delivery went out, and it, it actually worked, and, and the contract was fulfilled. So what I did is I, one, I became the, they called me the witch's hammer. That's what the, my QA people started calling me, because <laughs> I started beating developers up with their own um, commits, as, like I basically became like the, the gating code reviewer for every code, every bit of code, and just holding people accountable. It's like, and I knew how the code worked, and I knew pro I was probably a better programmer than most of them, and I'd be like, hey, that's not going to work. I can, like, you didn't test this. It's not going to work. And then I got everyone involved in the QA. So I said, this, this is how we're going to do this deploy. Because usually deploys are done late at night. Th this is how most deploys went. I would get on the computer, it was 11 o'clock. We'd start the deploy, and I have a, the, the biggest can of Rockstar that you can buy. <laughs> and I would sit there, and if we got to about two, and it didn't look like we were close to this, <laughs> uh, and I was buckled in. And like there were many nights where we just stayed up all night, like patching things back together in our deployment process. So I said, instead of us being like a small team of three people, three to you know, however many developers volunteered to do these deployments, we're going to have the whole company. We, we keep telling ourselves this is the most important thing, so the whole company is going to come to this. And we're going to do a deployment in the office with the whole company. And I got everyone attached. Still, still at 11 p.m.? Or? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, we're going to stay. The CEO, everyone, you, you believe this is the important thing? I want every executive here. I want every, and the CEO is like, okay, we'll do it. 
<laughs> once. Yeah, once. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's symbolic, right? Uh, so, and it was, it was truly symbolic because I gave the sales guys a bunch of things I knew wouldn't break. It's like, <laughs> you guys do this list of things. Go do it. It's like all stuff I knew wouldn't break. And then the, the people that were the developers and the, and the QA that had a bunch of context, it's like we had this, this log stream that had like a bunch of exceptions all the time. And people would be, it's like reading the matrix and you're like, that one's not bad, that one's not bad, uh-oh. Right, it's like, and you're like, <laughs> so, so you know, okay, like we'll, we'll swallow that one, that one's fine, that, oh, that one's bad, right? And so you have like the people reading the matrix and you have the QA guys doing this. And then I had a special task for the executives. They all had the same task, which, which was basically to do the simplest thing that the marketing of this product would, would say is the value proposition. Like you just have to do this one little thing. It should be easy. We tell our customers it's easy all the time, right? And Ooh. only one of the executives could actually do that task Ooh. in the three hours that it took to do the deployment. Two of them couldn't finish it, and the others were able to finish it with help from uh, developers and other people. It was amazing the next day how many things that had been prioritized from a, a customer support perspective as important all of a sudden became important that weren't important the day before because our executives were faced with the actual reality of that product. And so then to kind of come back to this, this narrative, uh, you get empathy from suffering. They never suffered. They never actually suffered what the product was like, so they had no way to connect that to any decision or any action that they were gonna that they were gonna put into the process. And that's a great argument for dog fooding. I mean, I watch Drama Fever, and I know Etsy folks. Most of them have an Etsy shop. It's like you have to actually, as as well as they, how much uh, time do Etsy folks actually spend buying crafts on Etsy? <laughs> They don't want to that's talk that's about the that. one metric that's so, not measured. Quick, quick shout out! Etsy. <laughs> shout, shout out to uh, Paul Moritz, who's the CEO of, of Pivotal, where I work, who's credited with, uh, at least on Wikipedia, the term dog fooding. Back Fantastic. in the back in his Microsoft days, we're hiring. <laughs> hey, so are we. We, we software. So is, so is, we uh, software. So is Tenth Magnitude, one of our sponsors, and so is probably PagerDuty. So is everybody. Yeah, Drama <laughs> Fever's hiring. Look at our website. Um, so. That's the obligatory pitch everyone has to say at all times. So, Andrew, when, you're, when you mentioned in your talk um, this idea about uh, you know, local optimizations, global optimizations, do you, do you want to expand a little bit more on that? When you're talking about DevOps, we've talked a little bit about the road that brought us to the DevOps that we have right now. But in terms of what you think we're optimizing for, what you think we should be optimizing for, what are your thoughts around that? I, I think it's hard to answer that question without... First, framing the context. And this is one of the things I think plagues DevOps and Agile and all these other things where people are trying to transform is that you can't really pr do something prescriptive until you have an, enough context to understand where you're starting from. And, you know, and it, there's a bunch of analogies you can make, but if you think about uh, health or exercise or any of the other things, like the program that you'd give to someone who is relatively healthy and capable uh, from, from an exercise perspective is, is very different than, than what you'd give to someone who, who has maybe different set of circumstances. So I don't, I don't really want to make a blatant statement about you know, what you can do to optimize, but going back to the, the idea of local versus uh, global, and this is where things like uh, you know, Pareto-efficient Nash equilibriums get really interesting, is if you, if you model the world as, as 
everything is an agent that's trying to maximize some function, then the, the ability for them to do that is a level, it, it's, it's how much do you understand the rules of the game, which is sort of a proxy for, do you understand cause and effect? Do you understand that if you change a thing that it will have another effect on whatever, whatever function you're trying to maximize from a quantitative perspective? So looking at the, the way that people behave and the way that this plays out inside of organizations, and, and you know, from organization you might have very different patterns of interaction, very different patterns of health. So what you're gonna tell people to do individually uh, is very different from context to context. I think that the notion of limited visibility is, it, like there's no way everyone knows everything. I don't know everything. Do you know everything? Heck no. <laughs> do, you even, do you know everything about what's going on in your company? Certainly not. I think that that would be very difficult for any one person to that's, do. That's, that's, the, that's the problem. Like we talk about, I mean, that's why you have domain experts now. The, the days of understanding all the parts of your system were 15 years ago, right? It, longer, way longer. And the, the thing that I, you know, when this already came up in this, in this episode, in this conversation, I think anything that radiates more ambient information that gets people, there's two things you can do. And this is all simple but not always easy, is radiate information to help people make better choices and then understand how the incentives are structured, right? If you, if you give someone a bonus on a certain, and this is you know, going back to Deming as well, if you give someone a bonus on a certain metric, you can be pretty damn sure that they're gonna hit that metric. And, and in the Deming quote originally, he says, even if it means they destroy the company because they're optimizing for their locally rational payout, right? So make, make sure to think about how, I mean, we're not all in, in this hierarchy of decision-making, we're not all in, empowered, right? Like we don't necessarily set our, our salaries, we don't necessarily set our bonuses. So there's, as a manager of people, you kind of set the game, the, the rules of the, of the game that's gonna be played below you to some extent, but you still don't have full power usually. And even as a CEO, you know, you still have regulations, you still have government, you still have a bunch of things that are kind of taken. So you, you have a board, you have VCs, exactly. whatever. So, so the most that you can actually do in the context that you live in is try to understand the incentives that people are, are motivated by, try to set things up where the incentives are aligned with the behaviors, and then give people as much information as you possibly can to make good decisions. That, that's sort of a general way that I would approach that. Oh, this episode went by really fast. Um, before we before we move on too far, I feel like you've you've touched on the Pareto inefficient Nash equilibrium that we associate so much with you because you've uh, discussed it at length in numerous talks. But for our listeners and uh, live studio audience who may not have actually seen those talks, do you want to give us the really quick why is that very applicable to DevOps? So this is borrowing. Uh, so Nash equilibrium is a game theoretic. Uh, fixed point when no one will change their strategy based on the way the game's been played up till now in, unless no one will change their strategy unilaterally. Sometimes there's, there's ways that if they share information or collaborate or whatever. Uh, and then a Pareto inefficient system is one where you can improve some player, some payout for one of the people. It, usually Pareto is applied to economics and not game theory, but uh, I'm dragging it over, so that you can improve the position of a payout for a party without hurting anyone else. If it's Pareto efficient, there's no way to change the, the payouts without 
someone also losing because it's a zero sum of that game. The, the point there is that you have a place where someone could be improved, maybe everyone could be improved, but no one will change their strategy because you're fixed there's a fixed point in the strategies where no one's going to change. So when I say Pareto inefficient Nash equilibrium, it means there's some obvious way if you globally optimize the system that everything could be improved, but no one will change their strategy so that so it won't ever happen. So do you feel pressure to be a thought leader? I'm, I'm a very privileged person, and I don't necessarily feel a pressure to, to produce anything that I don't want to at this point. I, I think, and I'm going to probably keep thinking, <laughs> And I'm probably going to keep talking about what I'm thinking about, but I don't. I don't feel pressure. Do you, I mean, and I guess does that does it change how you think about sharing ideas, knowing that maybe they're received in different ways because of your experiences and your reputation that may be then different than they were six not, years not ago. Not really. I, I mean, if you kind of go back to some of the stuff John was saying, there's a lot of things where through DevOps, I, I don't. I don't need credit. I don't need attention. And there's lots of things that I said first or, or said a certain way that then lots of people said. Or, you know, in some places they, like, even maybe got more attention for saying it than I did. And I don't, I don't care. I mean, uh, you know, I have, uh, what, I'm, what I'm optimizing for is my wife and three kids and my bank account. And, like, I'm doing pretty well. So uh, at, the, at the point, like, I don't believe in hiding. You know, if I, if I wanted to... If, if, my, if I felt like my career was dependent on me constantly producing thoughts, then that would be one thing. But there's so much more to what's going on and how things are structured where I'm doing pretty well. I'm pretty happy with the things. So there's no pressure to be a thought leader. There's just a constant desire to learn and a constant desire to share. And I, I genuinely want other people to do better. So I'm just going to – my default mode is to just share as much as I can to try to help people have more context to make better decisions. And that's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much, Andrew. Slide that's amazing. Andrew. We're we're gonna we're gonna go into our uh, applause. We're gonna go into just a quick few announcements. We have community and event stuff to talk about. We have upcoming conferences, DevOps Day Chicago. Matt, yeah, that's Matt? Uh, DevOps Day Chicago will be August 25th and 26th. ADO listeners can get 10% off with the registration code ADO10. If you go to devopsdayshy.org, you can register. There's other things upcoming. Um, I was lazy and didn't really get DevOps Days Pittsburgh. Oh, yeah. When is that? that? It's August 13th and 14th. Oh, yeah. So that's good. Hmm. Let me look at the calendar. And there's another a, a number of other DevOps yeah. Days coming up that so you go probably want to go to The usual DevOps. place. Go to devopsdays.org and check out the other DevOps days coming up. Okay. So we have a newsletter. If you go to arresteddevops.com slash banana stand, it's the best way to know about upcoming podcast episodes and cool news with DevOps. I haven't sent it out in quite some time, but we'll get right on top of that again. Uh, we also have an iPhone app. If you like having an iPhone app to listen to our show on, you can download it for free at arresteddevops.com slash iPhone. Thanks to our sponsors. Be sure to visit them at arresteddevops.com slash 10th magnitude and arresteddevops.com slash pagerduty. Thanks to Andrew for joining us. And thanks to Bridget for inviting me. <laughs> and loyal listeners, if you enjoy Arrested DevOps. DevOps? That's the first time you've stumbled over the name of the show, which is impressive that you've been on the show for this long and it's taken you that long. Because I 
Like you listen to the first five episodes, I said it wrong every time, and it's my show. Sorry, and I mean I came up with the name of the show. It is your show, Matt, and I've actually never watched Arrested Development. Yeah, so. this is another problem. <laughs> yeah. And loyal listeners, if you enjoy Arrested DevOps, we would appreciate it if you would visit ArrestedDevOps.com/slash/itunes and leave us a review in the iTunes Store. We'd love to know what you thought of this episode. Please leave us comments at ArrestedDevOps.com/slash/39. Sorry about that, Andrew. Sorry about that. There is an episode number. (laughs) Uh, You can check us out at ArrestedDevOps.com. We're at ArrestedDevOps on Twitter. We'd love to know ideas, you know, feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, Show ideas at shows at ArrestedDevOps.com. So I'm Matt at Matt Stratton. And I'm Bridget at Bridget Kramhout. We're Arrested DevOps. And remember... There's always DevOps. In the banana stand. In your heart. That's